We turn now to the epistle lesson, the scripture lesson today, which comes to us from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter, uh, verses 10 through 18. Listen now for God's word to you today. So Paul writes, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand as best we can your word and your world this day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a man was driving up a really narrow, steep mountain road, and as he was doing that, a woman was driving down the same narrow, steep mountain road, and as they came together, the woman rolled down her window of the car and shouted out, Pig! And the man shouted right back at her, Witch! or a word that rhymes with which and starts with B. And then they each continued on their way. And as the man rounded the next corner, he crashes into a pig in the middle of the road. Okay, so it's a joke. But I also think it gets at something that we're facing these days as a country, as a society. Because for all sorts of reasons, we're losing the ability to listen to each other. We're getting so divided and isolated and insulated into self-selected groups so that we get programmed or we predisposed or we start being ready to assume that uh, somebody else has it all wrong or they have it in for us in some way. And sometimes it can feel like we're heading for a crash. Now, of course, social division has existed for time immemorial. There's nothing new about it, even if nowadays it feels like it's kind of on steroids. A young rabbi arrived at his synagogue, just came there for the first time in the first couple of weeks for Friday services. He, he notices that the, the congregation is divided. 
Half the people say that the tradition in the synagogue is to stand when they pray, and half the people say the tradition is to sit as they pray, and then each side will shout at each other saying that their tradition is the right one. Well, there was nothing the rabbi could do, and so he decides to go talk to the 99-year-old founder of the synagogue, and he, he finds the old rabbi in a nursing home, and he explains to him all of his troubles, and he says, so tell me, was it the tradition for the congregation to stand during prayers? And the old rabbi says, no. Well, must be that the tradition was to sit during prayers. The rabbi says, no. Well, says the young rabbi, what we have now is a situation of complete chaos. Half the people stand and shout. Half the people sit and scream. Ah, said the old rabbi, that was the tradition. <laughs> well, maybe that's kind of what it was like in that little church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, too. Congregation was divided. The members were each identifying themselves with or pledging their allegiance to whoever it was who happened to have baptized them. They'd say, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, Cephas, or I follow this evangelist named Apollos. There were even some people who said, I follow Christ, as if they didn't get the whole point of being divided. Be like, you know, little Jackson saying, I follow Don, because he baptized me. God help him if he ever did that. Anyway, the church in Corinth was seriously conflicted. Now, in Greek, the, the word that Paul uses to describe what's going on is schismata. Schismata, where we get the English word schism. So schismata in Greek originates in a, in a phrase that was used, a sewing phrase, basically, for when fabric is being torn apart. That's where the word comes from. Now, to be sure, Paul himself was not naive about the ways of human conflict. He'd been part of plenty of it, both before he was a Christian and after he was a Christian. No, he, it wasn't that people were disagreeing about issues that was the problem. It was about the very core identity of who they were as the body of Christ. That's why Paul asked them the question, the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Obvious answer is no. Christ is not divided. And the proof, as you get a sense of this in pretty much everything Paul writes, the proof that Christ is not divided is that there's such a thing as the church in the first place. I mean, it took some sort of mind-boggling miracle for God to bring all these, this ragtag group of people together from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of places. It was a miracle in the first place that it was something called the church. Because these people had already been divided in all sorts of mutually exclusive and oftentimes, you know, antagonistic groups. There were Greeks and Jews and, and slaves and free and Men and women and all the, everything else, almost anything else you can think of that would divide people was there in the church. And yet, 
And yet, the Holy Spirit had done something to these people to bring them together into the body of Christ. So how on earth could these Corinthians tear themselves apart again? Paul says that the very idea that you could tear tear apart the body of Christ calls into question the whole gospel, which is, as he says, centered on the unifying symbol of the cross. The cross. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the message of the cross is easy to understand. It's not. Paul himself calls it foolishness for those who are perishing. But, you know, there's both what the cross symbolizes and then there's the symbol of the cross, right? So we have a cross here. Most churches have a cross. Sometimes you'll see me, uh, if you notice, crossing myself during a service of worship. I didn't grow up that way as a Presbyterian, but I learned through many trips to Russia years ago and being part of Eastern Orthodox worship services to cross myself sometimes. But even then, the church is divided about how you cross yourself, right? The Catholics go this way, the Orthodox go this way. Who's right? God only knows. But basically, the meaning of the cross boils down to three things. Many more, but basically three things. First is forgiveness. Remember that 2,000 years ago, for the Jews and the Greeks and for basically everybody else who lived on this earth, the way to, to, the way to get God to be on your side or to get right with God or to atone for your sins or something you had done wrong, that involved making a sacrifice, either of an animal, God forbid, sometimes human beings, or something else of value, sacrifice. But when Jesus dies on the cross as the the body, the flesh, the incarnation of God himself, that ends any need for sacrifice. It's all over. There's nothing you can possibly do on your own to, to get right with God, to win God's favor. God's taken care of all of it, wiped away every debt, every sin you ever had. So the cross brings us together into the same body of Christ who died for us, who rose again for us, and still lives in us as we live together. And the second meaning of the cross involves seeing it for what it really is. And that is as a device for delivering death, pure and simple. That's what it was for the Romans. That's what it was for the Roman Empire. So when Jesus was executed as a common criminal, the empire took that as good news. Good news. Another another one bites the dust. He's been trying to, you know, throw sand in the face of the emperor. Well, the emperor showed him. But you and I know that's not the end of the story. Because when Jesus rises again, that whole symbol is turned on its head. And a mechanism of death becomes a means of grace and new life. 
So when Jesus does that, it also shows that God is more powerful and more just and more righteous than any other power that could ever rule on this earth. And so as the body of Christ, we are called to take our stand against any social or political or economic forces that would stand in the way of human flourishing. And the way we do that is self-giving love. And that's the third meaning of the cross. Jesus gave everything he had, even life itself, in the service of love. And if you and I are ever going to follow him, we have to be ready to do the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to agree on how to do it or how to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. God knows that's not going to happen this side of heaven. But whatever conflicts we do have, they can never threaten our core identity as the body of Christ. The other day I had a meal with a friend of mine, and he and I were both ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, which, you know, that's the largest Presbyterian denomination still <laughs> in the United States, and it's the one more or less that's existed from the 17th century, Presbyterian Church USA. And my friend is nearing the end of his time as a pastor at another uh, Presbyterian church, although this particular Presbyterian church a few years ago split off from the PCUSA and joined another Presbyterian denomination based on, in part, the issues of gay ordination and gay marriage. They're against it. And what's more, that congregation recently called a new pastor who was ordained in yet another Presbyterian denomination that's roots are in a split that happened before the Civil War. In some weird way, we're still fighting about slavery. Anyway, my friend and I, we got to talking about all the divisions that it still exist, persist, among Christians, whether we're Presbyterians or we've all heard about what's going on with the Methodist Church or with evangelicals and liberals, whatever it is. And he and I agreed that with everything else that's going on these days, you know, with the impeachment process back in D.C. or the anger that we get saturated all over the place on social media or the arguments that can break out around kitchen tables among people who supposedly love each other, at a time like this, it seems like we might be heading for a crash as a society. And so the question is, what are we in the church going to do about it? What are we going to do to keep this from happening, to keep the crash from happening? What are we going to do to mend the breach, to learn how to listen to each other? I mean, isn't that something we're supposed to be good at? Right? We're famous for, as Christians, we break bread together, we pray together, we serve together, we love and we listen to each other. At least that's what we say and that's what we sing. And granted, we don't always do it. But if we're ever going to bring good news to a society that is being swamped 
with bad news. As people shaped by the cross, we need to learn and we need to model how to cross the divide and live together as a body. Parker Palmer wrote a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit. And from his perspective as a Christian and as a Quaker, he says there are five core habits of the heart, which should remind you if you know of Alexis de Tocqueville, but five habits of the heart we need to embrace in order to do this, in order to live together, to thrive together, to mend the breach. And I'm not going to get into too much detail, but let me just say the first habit is we have to understand that we're all in this together, right? Should be obvious. So we need to appreciate the value of otherness, that the stranger or the person we have to dis happen to disagree with on this or that issue they may actually have something valuable to teach us. And we might have something valuable to teach them. And the, the thing is, to, to get to that point where we can learn, that's easier said than done, right? We all know that. Which need, means we need to get real about ourselves, too. We need to get real. We need to realize that all of us are imperfect. All of us are imperfect we're all imperfect people. None of us has all the right answers about everything, so a sense of our own brokenness can open us up to fresh insight and energy from others. It's also true that lots of people, for lots of reasons, have been routinely ignored in our society. So to live and thrive together, everyone has to have and know that they have a right to be heard and to have a seat at the common table. And then finally, we need to become what Parker Palmer calls gardeners of community. Great phrase. We need to keep finding creative new ways to connect, to engage, to get to know, to listen to each other. Because the problems we face are way too big for any one person, or any one party, or any one group, or any one tribe to solve on their own. And he writes this. If I were asked for two words to summarize the habits of the heart American citizens, and I would add Christians, need in response to 21st century conditions, I would choose the words chutzpah and humility. By chutzpah, I mean knowing that I have a voice that needs to be heard and the right to speak it. By humility, I mean accepting the fact that my truth is always partial and may not be true at all. So I need to listen with openness and respect, especially to the other, as much as I need to speak my own voice with clarity and conviction. Now, if you're looking for a slogan... Chutzpah and humility is pretty good. That's kind of a good mantra to have in terms of thinking about how we can cross the divide. And it also kind of summarizes our life together as Christians, too. 
Because as a people shaped by the cross, we share a bold and active faith, but our ability to act is itself a gift. It comes only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That means we're forgiven, so we need to forgive others. Also means that we are set free by God's power from whatever it is that would keep us down, so we need to be ready to set other people free too. And since the way of Jesus is self-giving love, we are called to live for each other both within our community and beyond. And I don't need to tell you, sometimes that's really hard. Though I have to say that a couple months ago I, I got a glimmer of hope. Joe Shearer up here, oh, I didn't even ask him to raise his hand and he did. <laughs> Joe uh, introduced me to a woman named Joan Blades. Some of you may have heard of her. Back, way back in 1998, she and her husband started MoveOn.org as a bipartisan effort to move the nation for, toward healing and away from division that was caused by, oh my gosh, the Clinton impeachment. And then over time, MoveOn sort of morphed into a major online force in progressive politics and it seems like eventually Joan got kind of tired of just being identified and being seen as a liberal activist. So working with a really diverse group of people like Mark Meckler, the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots, and Rich Taffel, the co-founder of Log Cabin Republicans, she started Living Room Conversations. Now, Living Room Conversation is basically what it sounds like. It's a it's a conversational model that was uh, developed by dialogue experts in order to facilitate connection between people despite their differences and even to identify some areas of common ground and shared understanding. And so the, there's a modality and a, and a method, really fairly straightforward, and you can just get some friends from different political perspectives and, and guide a conversation in your own living room of all places. And this movement is, like some other movements, spreading around the country right now, despite what you hear in the media all the time. People really are starving, starving to mend the breach and to listen and learn from each other. Now, as Joan describes it, it sounds like actually something we can try out here at Piedmont Community Church and maybe you know, invite people from our broader community to get engaged in that as well. So, so I intend to do that at some point, hopefully really soon, so look for some more details coming soon. Now, obviously, we can't do everything to mend the breach in society, but as followers of Jesus, as citizens, we can do something. And it's going to take chutzpah. And it's going to take humility. That's for sure. But as the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, the nearer we come to Christ, the nearer we come together. So let's come together despite 
and maybe even in light of our differences. And let's cross the divide in Jesus' name. Amen.